Now it's time for a scripture reading. Today's scripture comes from Matthew 11, 1 through 6. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 688. Matthew 11, 1 through 6. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Due to what God is doing in some of our college fellowship and what God is doing in some of our college students' lives. Um, So uh, as I begin this sermon, I want to begin by asking a couple of our uh, college students to come up and share. Uh, I've asked a couple of our seniors to come up and share because presumably this will be their last opportunity that they have to come up and uh, share with us a little bit about themselves. You, you see a lot of them serving. You, you kind of see their faces, but you don't really know who they are. And so I want to use this opportunity for you to get to know them a little bit and see what God has been doing in their lives. So first I'm going to ask Patricia to come up, and she's going to share a little bit about God has worked in her life over these past four years. And then uh, Chris, Joe will come up and share. Okay, so Patricia. Hello, everyone. Um, This is a piece of spoken word poetry that I wrote. Um, It's called Undone. I thought that I was finished before I even started. On the first day of the first year of college, I came here expecting to be unimpressed. I wasn't looking for Jesus or a path to salvation or even to sate my curiosity because I had already had it all figured out. See, I was a church kid before I was even born, dedicated to the Lord while I was still in my mother's womb. At seven, I knew all the Bible stories. At 11, I learned all the right answers in Sunday school. At 15, I figured out when to raise my hands during worship. And at 17, I walked into church and I thought that I was finished. That I had already figured out the definition of the word grace because I had sung it so many times in the lyrics of songs I had yet to fully understand. I didn't come to church to know Jesus. I came so I could prove to everyone else that I already did. Because up until then, I bore the name of Christian proudly while secretly fearing that I was a fraud. And to prove my identity as Christian, I made sure to always stand on the right side of debate. Fancying myself a martyr and a warrior of the word for standing up against abortion and gay marriage and reciting the words, hate the sin, love the sinner, without even understanding what it meant to love. 
but understanding fully what it meant to hate. Because I hated people. And I was a woman who would, even before coming to Wellesley, because I would get picked on and bullied at school, and I would eventually learn to hate recess and people. So instead, I would turn my eyes to schoolwork because in the rows of A's and perfect test scores, I would see a version of myself that was good and acceptable. Grades became my god. Not because I slaved and sacrificed over them, but because I knew they would always be there for me. A mighty fortress to protect me from judgment and cruelty. A mirror to show me that I was good and acceptable. And every night before bed, I would pray, Thank you, God, for making me smart. But that mirror was nothing but cracked glass, and that fortress was built on sinking sand, and I watched the numbers of my college GPA fall like raindrops into muddy puddles my sophomore year, I failed a class. And I started to doubt that I was someone good enough to believe in. Because what are you when you can no longer believe in yourself? When you are no longer good enough for you because you are no longer worthy of being loved because you are no longer the you that you thought you were. I believed that love was transactional. As if this gift of boundless grace and compassion was too great to come without a price, and my pockets would always be too empty to pay it off. And I believed that love was contractual, as if you had to be my family or at least my best friend for love to come for free. I believed that love was something that needed to be earned, paid for in a currency tangled in a stock market of self-worth and self-hatred. But all the while I was learning in Sunday school that Jesus gave his life to show love undeserved and unconditional. And I had no idea what that could possibly mean until they knocked on my door. It had been too many Fridays since I had seen them at church. You see, the thing about depression is that it's a monster that feeds on loneliness and craves silence. And it delights in ignored calls and unanswered emails and silence. And it takes the world and crumples it into a little ball until there's nothing left except for you and just silence. Why couldn't they just leave me alone? I had shut them out, rejected them, abandoned them. And I didn't think they would ever come back for me because my taxes of affection to them had been left unpaid. I owed them love, but I had nothing left to give. So I confined myself to a debtor's prison, locking the door and swallowing the key and pleading that they would leave me alone to the guilt and the shame of my spiritual poverty. But they wouldn't because God didn't. And they showed his love to me, undeserved and unconditional. The greatest of these is love because love was enough to pay the greatest price. God's love was enough to pay the greatest price. All my life, I had underestimated the power of the cross and the power of his love in his people empowered through the cross and the power of those empowered that when used to wash feet instead of conquering nations somehow becomes smaller but not any less greater. He must increase but I must decrease. He must increase but I must 
decrease. Sell my love to broken hearts without a price tag. See his love renewed day by day. Say with my mouth that he lived and died so that I can just live. Set our eyes heavenwards and recklessly spend our short times here on earth just to make his glory known. We have only just begun. I have only just begun. Good morning, everyone. My name is Chris Cho. I'm a senior at Bentley. Um, as a senior, I'd like to share with you how God has grown me spiritually um, during my college years. Um, so let me take you back to 2010 when I was a freshman. Um, I didn't wear glasses at the time. I was naive and I was awkward. Um, not that I'm not awkward now, but um, I was also a fair bit skinnier. Um, but I also thought, I had thoughts like, what am I going to do um, during my college years? And I don't really feel that I fit into this culture and the student body. Should I transfer to a school close to home? Or there's really nothing for me here. So amidst all of that, um, the most common question that I got asked was, why did you choose to move across the country and attend Bentley? Now, this is actually a pretty legitimate question because Bentley can be considered a regional, private, business university. And to be honest, that sort of made me unsure of why I chose Bentley myself. Um, but my canned response was always that uh, it's a top-ranked private business university. It's located in the Northeast. Um, so I like the relatively small size, um, the focus on business and the proximity to Boston. But over the past three years, God has been equipping me and shaping me into who I am today. Along the way, he answered prayers in faith. He comforted me in times of adversity. He brought me to my knees as I cried um, after a long semester abroad where I uh, took a step away from my, my walk. And he reminded me that he still loved me and that he still cared for me and that he had my entire life in his hands. Reflecting on all these experiences, I now realize that there's a much greater answer to why God brought me to Bentley. He really had a plan for me all along. It was to learn about him and to deepen my love for other people and also to deepen my love for him. God led me to attend ICF, to meet older brothers and sisters as a freshman, to challenge me to take steps of faith, and to also become, ultimately become that older brother to younger ICFers and challenge them in the same way that I was challenged. As I conclude, I'd like to address the question, so what? Since this is my last semester, I have Fridays off, and I was thinking at the beginning of the semester, what would I do on my Fridays off? You know, I could play Counter-Strike with my roommates. Um, I could stay up till 1 p- one, I could sleep until 1 p.m., stay up on Thursday night as late as I want, and wake up on Friday and do absolutely nothing with almost no consequence. And, but one night, God really convicted me. Um, he kept me up and said, um, this is where you're going to go. He gave me the exact location. And he said, you are to do outreach on campus. So it became clear to me that this is what he wanted me to do. He gave, he, he gave me the realization that 
He has already equipped me to do outreach on my own, and, to, and he has prepared people in advance to talk to. So it was just up to me to go and obey and also just simply share my faith. So as ICF continues, continues this semester, I invite you to pray for uh, myself and Joseph as we go out on Fridays, also for the other outreach efforts that are going on in ICF. Um, so I just invite you to pray for um, all the students in ICF. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris, Patricia. I just hope that through the sharing, you get a little uh, taste of some of the people that we have in ICF and that you really uh, come to recognize that God has really blessed our church with some great college students. I mean, I can't speak much for those who came in the past before I was here, but I can tell you that during my time here, God has really gifted us uh, with some just really godly and very talented students. I think other churches would, would fight to just have students that we have here. And I appreciate them because, um, because of them, you know, God has used them to make ICF much of what it is today. And so for today's message, I just want to take some time to encourage these students uh, with this passage that we just read. I was actually planning to speak on something else this morning. I was all set preparing a message uh, in Mark. Uh, but as I was preparing, I felt the Spirit leading me to scrap that message and preach on this passage in Matthew. I know a lot of our students have been working hard. They've been pouring much of themselves out to help others. And I know it can get weary at times. So I hope to encourage them with this message and in the process encourage the rest of you and, and challenge you as well. If you were here a few months ago, uh, I think it was back in December, you may recall that I preached a message about John the Baptist. I shared how John was just this strange dude who had strange clothes and lived in a strange place and ate yeah, strange food. Uh, he announced the arrival of Jesus, though, and he pointed thousands of people to Jesus. He was bold. He was outspoken. He was fearless. According to Jesus, as we looked at at that time, he was the greatest man who ever lived. And shortly after I preached that message, Jeff Wong sent me a cartoon about that. I don't know if you can see it. But if you can't read it, it says, John the Baptist lived in the wilderness, studied diet of locusts and honey, wore clothes made of camel hair, yelled at religious people, constantly told everyone to repent. The greatest person ever born of a woman, according to Jesus. And you can't read the caption. He says something like, oh, hey, dude, you got to try this bug and honey smoothie or something like that. But then in the next caption, there's us. John the, Spirit, the Baptist's spiritual descendants, really concerned about being considered weird. And if you can read the, the caption, it says... Well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but not one of those extreme Christians. I still, uh, you know, I still want to be cool and socially relevant. Please tell me I'm cool. Please tell me I fit in, so on and so forth. So that kind of just harkens back to the message back that I preached uh, in December about John. And, you know, John may have been the greatest person who ever lived, assuming we put Jesus in another category, but he wasn't perfect. He, he was only human, after all. And with it came all the, ra the range of human emotions and experiences. So here in Matthew 11, we find a time when John is not so bold, 
He's not so fearless. He's alone. And he's sitting in a prison cell. He's not there on account of Jesus, but why he's there has everything to do with what he believes in Jesus. And for a person in this situation, he does what typically anyone would do. He begins to question. His faith begins to give out. And so he rallies some of his disciples together to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? In other words, are you really the one we should be following Jesus? Are you really the one we should expending, be expending our efforts and expending our time for? And I want us to dig deeper this morning to understand why John was feeling this way and how Jesus' response to John can help all who find themselves in a similar situation. And so the first reason I want to highlight as to why John was facing doubts is what I just alluded to, and that was his extenuating circumstances. His extenuating circumstances. Once again, John sits in jail, not directly because of Jesus, but definitely because of what he believes about Jesus. During that time, the ruler of Galilee, his name was Herod Antipas or Antipas, something like that. He's the son of Herod the Great. And there was a time when this Herod Antipas went to visit his brother in Rome. And while he was there, he took a liking to his brother's wife, Herodias, and he seduced her. They had determined to marry, but there was a problem. Well, both of them were still married. And so Herodias demanded that he divorce his current wife. So Herod Antipas goes back home and makes plans to divorce his wife and steal his brother's wife. No matter also that Herodias was also the half-niece of both of these men. So this would have been an incestuous relationship even if they weren't married. So John the Baptist finds out about this. And what does he do? Well, being the bold person that he is, he wants to stand up for God's truth. And he calls him out. He doesn't write an anonymous letter. He doesn't ask to set up a private meeting with Herod. He goes up to Herod in public. And he rebukes him. In Matthew 14, 4, it says that John keeps telling him, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And of course, this infuriates Herod. And Herod actually wants to kill John. But because of John's popularity, he's afraid. So he has him arrested. And he has him thrown in jail. And it's not just any jail that he had him put into. It was this place called Macarius. And historians tell us that this place was a former palace that was converted to a fortress. It was way up on a mountain out in the wilderness somewhere. And located at the bottom of this fortress was this dungeon, this pit. It was dark and grimy, stifling. And so this man who was a free spirit, if you remember, he lived out in the wilderness most of his life, could roam around wherever he wanted to with all of its wide open spaces. He's now confined to the small, narrow, underground dungeon. And instead of, flock, of thousands of people flocking to hear him and be part of his, his ministry, he only shares space with probably some rats, roaches, spiders, whatever. I mean, why should he be here? Hadn't he done everything that God asked of him? Well, yes, he did. And he did it quite well. He prepared the way for Jesus and he pointed people to him. When John's disciples were getting worried that Jesus was eclipsing John's popularity, John replied, he must become greater. 
I must become less. And so is this his reward for being faithful? I mean, he was even a close relative of Jesus, so Jesus wouldn't leave him to suffer in prison, or would he? You see, when circumstances of life begin to overwhelm us, when demands are beckoning from all sides, when schoolwork or work is calling, when our friends are keep, keep asking us to, to, to meet with them, when ministry gets burdensome, we have family responsibilities to attend to, we can easily begin to question and doubt can creep in. Why is all this happening? And why is it all happening at the same time? What's the point of me doing this? Is it worth it? Like John the Baptist, we want to know, Jesus, are you really the one? Is this how it's supposed to be? And then related to this is another reason for John's doubt, and that is over expectations unmet. If we were in John's shoes, I'm sure we could easily empathize with him over expectations that Jesus would come and intervene in some way. You know, if Jesus really cared for me, he would come and save me. I've played such an important role in his ministry. I was there for the beginning. You know, I'm family for heaven's sake. I mean, the least he could do would be to come and visit me. But Jesus never does. He never drops by to see how John, his cousin, is doing. And it goes deeper than that because Jesus, excuse me, it goes deeper than that because John believes that Jesus isn't even fulfilling his role as a Messiah. During John's ministry, if you recall, he was preaching a message of repentance, like it said in that cartoon we just looked at. Why was John preaching a message of repentance? Because with the, with the coming of Jesus, he truly believed that judgment was near. He warns the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew, Matthew 3, verse 10. He says, The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. A couple of verses later, he adds, his winnowing fork is, at, is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So John believed that with Jesus' coming, redemption would take place, and part of this redemption process would mean that evil would be destroyed. And though John is now in prison, he knows what's going on with Jesus' ministry because some of his followers are now following Jesus and reporting to John everything that Jesus is doing. We can see this, for example, in Luke 7. In Luke 7, there's an account of Jesus entering this town called Nan. And as he does so, he sees the body, they see the body of this dead man being carried out. This man was the only son of a widow. And as this body is being carried out and they see the crowds around them and, and, and the mourners mourning. Jesus has compassion on this man and he raises this man from the dead right to the amazement of everyone there. And then right after this account, Luke writes, John's disciples told him, John that is, about all these things. John's disciples were also watching Jesus to see if he was acting in the way that they felt appropriate for such a Messiah. A couple of chapters earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 9, we read of John's disciples questioning Jesus, asking him, how come we fast? How come the Pharisees fast? But your disciples, they don't fast. You know, they were thinking to themselves, this isn't appropriate for someone who are, for people who are following the so-called Messiah. This isn't how the Messiah should be teaching the people. So John hears all these things. 
And once again, he begins to question. Jesus isn't acting really like the Messiah should. He's not having his disciples act like the Messiah should. God told me to preach a message of repentance because judgment was, was near. So how come Jesus is just going all around healing these people? You know, why isn't he destroying his enemies like he says he would? And, and why doesn't he start with Herod and Herodias and get me out of prison? You know, once again, I, I think it's easy for us to relate to John because we have certain expectations of how Jesus should act and what he should do. And oftentimes, these go unfulfilled. As we go through trials, we wonder why God doesn't seem to intervene. As we cry out to God, we wonder, why does he remain silent? I'm pouring myself out. I'm serving you. I'm telling people about Jesus. I'm ministering to those in need. But I don't really feel being poured to in return. Do you really care, God? Jesus, are you really the one we should be following? For those in this situation, it's easy to support John's cause. We can totally empathize with the way he's feeling. But as we move on, I think we can take heart in the words that Jesus says to John's disciples. So in verse 4 to 6, as Rebecca read, Jesus tells John's disciples, Go back and report to John what you see or what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. In referencing all these these miracles, Jesus is alluding first to Old Testament passages which refer to the coming Messiah and refer to him as doing such things. For example, you can turn to Isaiah 35, and in Isaiah 35, it describes some of what will happen when the Messiah comes. And you can see this in verse 5 and 6. It says, The eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And then later in Isaiah 61, in verse 1, it says, of another role of the Messiah, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So notice some of the similarities between these verses and what we just read in verse 4 to 6 in Matthew. So in in saying these things, Jesus is confirming to John that in doing all these deeds, he truly is the long-for Messiah. But then once again, he adds at the end, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. What does he mean by this? You know, one advantage I think many of us believe is that those who lived during the times when Jesus was on earth have a much easier time believing in him because they saw firsthand evidence of all that he did. And this may be true for some people, but recognize that it wasn't true for John. John didn't have an eyewitness account of the miracles that Jesus performed. He had eyewitnesses who told him what Jesus did, but he didn't see it firsthand. And that really isn't too different from us now who are reading about these accounts from eyewitnesses who saw what Jesus did, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so in saying what he did, I believe Jesus is teaching John and and teaching us as well the importance of having a proper understanding of Jesus and faith. 
You know, one thing that I think troubles us, myself included, is the seeming imbalance of divine miracles being given out. You know, a woman has breast cancer and is completely healed of it. Whereas a man has lung cancer, and even though the whole church gathers around for prayer and praise for months at a time, it doesn't prevent an early death. One person gets laid off from his job, and is, but is soon offered another one at a pay higher than the job he was laid off with. And praise God. But then there's a friend of mine who got laid off from his job more than 14 months ago because of difficult economic times, and he still hasn't found anything yet. And his chances of finding a job grow increasingly grim because he's already in his late 50s. Companies don't want to, want to hire someone so old. One couple after a miscarriage are blessed with a beautiful child. Another couple I know experienced at least three miscarriages, and after 10 years of trying, they weren't able to have children. You know, Brian shared earlier when he gave his testimony uh, uh, like several months ago about how he was honoring the Sabbath, and afterwards he got an A on the exam the next day. I would take that exam and I would fail. I would take any exam and I would fail if, there, if I observed the Sabbath and didn't study it. I just know it. You know, Jesus is raising people from the dead. But John is here rotten in prison. And things don't get better for John either because he's actually, if you know the end of the story, he's going to soon have his head served up on a platter to the evil Herod and Herodias. And so Jesus says, blessed is the man who does not fall away in account of me. Yeah, thanks, Jesus. That's just what I wanted to hear. But in what probably is a familiar verse to many of you, in Hebrews 11.1, 1, it tells us that faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. You know, what if Jesus did show up at every funeral to raise the dead? What if he healed every disease at the hospital? He solved every financial crisis everyone had, and he restored every relationship. You might argue that in doing so, our faith would be strengthened. And that could be true, but it would also be weakened. For miracles are just meant to point to something bigger, something more real. As one author put it, when faith comes to depend on a miracle, it ends up mistaking the sign for the destination. You see, Jesus wants us to recognize that he is much bigger and grander than this, much larger than someone who just answers to our every beck and call. He is God. So faith is not in something or in the some things one can do, but faith is in someone. If you recall, there was a time when large crowds were following Jesus, to hear him teach. And it was getting late, and Jesus had compassion on them, so he multiplied the few fish and loaves that they could find, and he fed, you know, 5,000 plus people. And the people were like, great, you know, free food. This guy's awesome. So they continued to follow him. Even when he wanted to leave, the crowds just kept following him wherever he went. So he continues to teach. But this time, his teaching is different. In John 6, we find this account. And he says this, he says, it says that Jesus rebukes the people by saying this, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Meaning, more so than the miracle that you saw, 
it was because you were the, the direct recipient of a miracle that you, you kept following me. And then he adds, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And later on, this is where Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life and to chase after the bread of life. He continues this teaching, but at the end, John recounts that from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They said things like, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? They directly benefited from the miracle, but they couldn't recognize who it was that gave it to them and why he wouldn't continue to dole out free food to them. And after Jesus sees most of his followers leave, he turns to the 12 disciples and he says, do you guys want to leave too? And Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One. So understand that we have faith in Christ not because of the some things he can do for us, not just because he feeds us and heals us and delivers us, because sometimes he doesn't do any of these things. But we have faith in Jesus because of the someone he is, the Holy One, the one who has the words of eternal life. So Jesus is encouraging John, even though you may not be the recipient of a miracle, don't lose faith because you've heard of the things I've done. You know I can perform miracles. You know I'm the, awaiting, I'm the long-awaited Messiah. Even though I may not act how you think I should, know that I am he who is to come. And I have a plan that may be more than you can understand right now. Don't fall away on account of me. Know that I am the one. So, you know, so I want to tell you, you know, don't get discouraged as you go and serve God and if he doesn't act in the way that you feel he necessarily should. You know, like Chris and Joe, as you guys go out to evangelize and, and, and others who do the same, you know, if you're standing in front of the student center and you're trying to meet people to share about Christ and people are looking at you funny and they're like, why are you doing this? And you're getting rejected by everyone? Don't get discouraged because you know who Jesus is. You know, Patricia, as you, as you go to pour out on people and they don't love you back in the way you hoped they would, continue to love them because you know Jesus has the words of eternal life. And you know that you might just meet someone like yourself two years ago who can change and just become, you know, this awesome person for God. Continue, all of you, you know, continue to go out on a limb because Jesus is worth it. And that's what I feel is the inherent challenge because if we believe that Jesus is really who he says he is, then how does it impact what we do? How are we just risking our lives for Jesus? Or are we too concerned about looking weird like the you know, earlier cartoon stated? As I finish up, I just want to share, you know, I was at a Dunkin' Donuts uh, one week this evening uh, preparing for this message. And, and let me tell you, all, all kinds of people come into Dunkin' Donuts, especially late at night. Um, when I sat down to the right of me was this well-dressed business professional. He had his MacBook open, you know, doing some work. To the left of me at this other table comes a guy, and by all accounts, 
or appearances. You know, he definitely looked homeless. He didn't buy anything at the counter. But I saw him, like, rummage through one of the garbage cans, and, and he took out, like, this half-drink uh, tea of ice, uh, cup of iced tea, and, and he began to, to start drinking it, not even bothering to get another straw, but just continuing to use the same straw that the previous person used. The businessman on my right, he finished up shortly, and as he proceeded to leave, he, he kind of walked over to my table, and, and he saw that I was studying the Bible, and he's like, God bless you in your study, and then, he, and then he walked off. So that was kind of encouraging. But I kept watching this guy to the left of me, you know, holding this half-drunk cup of tea, taking sips from it. And I felt like, I mean, I should buy this guy a cup of coffee or offer to buy this guy a cup of coffee, you know, knowing that when we do things for the least of these, we may be doing it for Jesus. You know, but there was all these other people around, and being the more private person I am, I didn't want to create a scene. But as I was thinking about, you know, how, how people in our college group, how, how others, you know, just aren't afraid to embarrass themselves for Jesus, I just bit the bullet, and I asked them. I said, hey, you know, can I buy you a cup of coffee? And for whatever reason, he didn't take me up on that offer. But soon thereafter, another person comes in, who sits at the place where the, the businessman was, and he starts talking to me and sharing with me how his wife kicked them out of the apartment or their home because of an argument they had, and he's got to spend the night on the streets tonight, and he'll go to a friend's house the next day. Um, you know, and, and as we were talking, a few minutes later, he asked me, could I buy him a sandwich? So I was like, okay. And then we, you know, so I buy him a sandwich, and then he, he, we start having this conversation about religion, you know, because he sees me studying the Bible, he asks what I'm doing, and he tells me about his Catholic background and how he reads the Bible and prays the rosary, and I try to tell him a little bit more about Jesus. But, you know, no miracles happen, you know, not, nothing, nothing miraculous to report, but I did what I felt I was called to do in this situation. And this is not to say that, you know, you need to buy food for every homeless person you meet on the street, Though sometimes you may be called to do it. But more so it's, you know, are you living your life in such a way that Jesus influences what you do, even if it may seem crazy to the rest of the world? Or to put it another way, how does the world see you do irrational things for Jesus? Jesus tells us, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. I think John's disciples went back to John and told him all they had seen. John, you wouldn't believe it. There was this guy who had leprosy and Jesus just touched him and he healed the man. There was this woman whose dead son was being carried out to the graveyard. Crowds were gathering around. People were crying. They were so sad. But Jesus comes and he raises this boy from the dead. We couldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe the look on this mother's face. I've never, we've never seen anything like it. But then they said, John, Jesus tells us to tell you one more thing, which is, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And I think John heard that, and he knew. Even though he was trapped in the dungeon, he knew Jesus was the one. And he had resolved, no matter what would happen. So if you truly believe, go and live like Jesus is the one. Go and do things that would make the world scratch their heads because he is the Holy One of God the one who has eternal words of life. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you uh, for this passage that you give to us to offer us hope. Um, when times can be discouraging, when we can get worn out and weary. Father, help us just to truly recognize who you are. And may we live like we recognize that you are who you are, the Holy One, the one who has the words of eternal life. Let us not grow weary, but let us be blessed because you tell us that blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Because of time, I think we're just going to go into